Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello and welcome to the New Statesman podcast. I'm Deputy Editor Helen Lewis and this week I talked to Raphael Baer and George Eaton about the fallout from George Osborne's budget. Kate Mossman talks to Jude Rogers about Kylie Minogue's reinvention and Ian Stebman and I discuss whether or not we should bring back the woolly mammoth. I'm joined by our political editor, Raphael Baer, and George Eaton, editor of The Staggers, to discuss the budget. Um, George, first of all, can you explain what happened with pensions to me in words of one or maybe two syllables? Well, George Osborne has recognised that uh, this is a group of voters uh, who feel they have lost out through uh, low interest rates, um, other uh, loose monetary policy, and some of whom have defected to UKIP. And he has worked out with an election... Less uh, just over a year away, the Tories need to start doing things uh, to to win them back. Um, so he's introduced, for instance, uh, a pension bond, a new pensions bond, which will pay at um, above average market rates, so that they will be able to get a decent return on their savings. Um, he's allowed them to draw down um, much more of their pension without uh, without being taxed on it. Um, so. The political motives of this budget were, were not hard to discern. I mean, as as is well known, your pensioners vote more than any other age group. 76% of over 65s voted in 2010 compared to 65% of the total electorate. Um, and Osborne, as ever, has made that uh, political calculation. So politically, it was, it was quite shrewd. And Raph, looking at the front pages of the Mail, the Telegraph and the Sun today, it's hit the spot pretty well, hasn't it? Yeah, and uh, politically, uh, as George said, uh, he's identified the right group of people for him. I mean, obviously, a Conservative government, a Conservative Chancellor will look out for Conservative voters. And if these are Conservative voters who are flirting with UKIP, he needs to, to bring them back. It was revealing, actually, that Labour's response to this was very measured. And the, the Shadow Chancellor, essentially, yes, they said, we can't definitively say whether or not we think this is a bad idea. We have to go and look at it. It's quite complicated. I mean, Ed Balls, he, he flagged up some interesting potential problems with it. Is that uh, a good strategy? Because we always say, I wish people would just be honest. But well, yeah, he I, was honest. Personally, I think it was quite honest. I, I was quite refreshed to hear someone at that level of politics say, crikey, this is quite complicated. We really need to be sure we understand what's going on here. But also being Ed Balls, he's smart and he very quickly picked up some potential problems. I mean, one which they have to be careful with is this idea that it's not necessarily a great idea to trust people to just go and evacuate their pension the moment they hit 65 which and then they might then all spend it on sweets and crack and then have no money and end up on benefits again and no one in the Labour Party is seriously going to say that uh, but there is you know that does that's like a terrible characterization of that view 
uh, masks, no, the kernel of a, of, a seri- of a proper issue. With which is, um, universal credit, where we know the idea of paying people out monthly, if you are somebody who's, li- who's, who's had trouble managing a budget in the past, the problem might be that you would get to the end of the month. Absolutely. I mean, there's, uh, yeah, people can't be their own actuaries and they, you know, because they, they just don't know what's going to happen. And there is, there, there is a risk, obviously, if you spend more of your pension pot up front or you take it up front. But you know, as the Chancellor said, You've got to trust people, and and that's he's probably chosen the politics of that quite well. The other slightly more complicated but interesting weakness in this idea that Ed Balls identified is that essentially your pension pot has been accrued to the size that it is because of tax breaks and government help that you've had over the course of your life. And there is the possibility that well-off people who have amassed a great big pension pot can then take it down tax, essentially tax-free or a very preferential tax rate, and then do something else with it, such as buy buy to let properties or invest in other things, and it just becomes another roundabout way of really subsidising people who've already got quite a lot of money to get even more money. It doesn't really do very much for people on sort of low incomes who just need that little bit of extra help when they retire. They're not working, and they wouldn't mind still having a half decent income to live on. So it, these are technical things that you don't, as you know, as the saying is, get on the back of a pledge card, but. Um, but the politics of it seems to have gone, as you say, quite strongly in, in the Tories' favour. And, and George, I mean, do you see this as being a very limited budget? It is what it is. Or is it paving the way for something broader, structural reforms to do with perhaps making people more in charge of, of, of benefits and the, and the money that's given to them, given back to them by the government? I think those ideas are certainly around in conservative circles. I think from now until the election, you're going to hear probably a lot less about sort of radical long-term reforms and probably more just returning to their sort of core core territory of you can trust us on the deficit, we will cap welfare. I mean, the welfare cap is obviously is a, is a significant change. I mean, the first ever time that there has been a, a cap introduced on overall welfare mm-hmm. spending and Labour have said they'd vote for it, mainly because um, it excludes things like the state pension and cyclical spending on unemployment benefit, which depends on how well the economy is performing. So they're actually the cap in some ways is, is not as is not as tough as it sounds and not as tough as it as it could have been. Um, but I think there will certainly be some Labour MPs who are very uncomfortable with the very principle of a cap on welfare spending mm-hmm. because benefits uh, sort of set at an arbitrary limit rather than responding to to need. And also just with the idea of walking through the the yes lobbies with the Tories. So I think the votes actually next week. So Osborne's behind this to be a sort of immediate trap for Labour. Um, and if Labour vote with them as, as they are going to, I, I think you will see some backbenchers uh, voting the other way. Although I don't think, uh, I mean, the politics of it are, are, are so strong on, on Osborne's side, just in terms of the language and the idea of a cap. And as you say, there's more flexibility in it um, than, than there might have been. And, you know, how it interacts with inflation, you know, future governments can fiddle with that. But ultimately, if you ask people most people, should there be a limit on how much the government spends on welfare? The answer is yes. And if Labour ended up in a position where they were saying the answer that was no, it would have been really problematic for them. And I think they've they've made the right call on that, is my, my judgment. I mean, just to go back to what George was saying about the, the technical, serious planning sort of tone that Osborne adopted yesterday, this is, I think, very important. The sense that what the message that he wanted to transmit was Look, there's actually there are no gimmicks here. I mean, there are always some gimmicks. Bingo, you know, beer tax cut. That was a gimmick. But the overall impression he wanted to give was we are working through our plan, long term plan to repair the you know, public finances and the economy after Labour ruined it. Um, and this is a serious job that we're getting on with. Now, 
Labour can attack them for that. But in order to do that, they need to say, well, actually, they need to come across as if they have a more substantial, serious long term plan of their own. And I think one of the biggest stories yesterday was actually Ed Miliband's, I think, actually looking at it now, quite dismal failure to project an equivalent level of seriousness and credibility in his budget response. Which is quite interesting because about two years ago, you wouldn't have said that we would be at this point. So, I mean, you wrote in your column this week, Raph, you know, the, the bizarre kind of electoral fact about the fact that GDP is up, unemployment never went the way that quite we thought it would. And yet there is a, a persistent poll lead for Labour. Yeah, and, and what Labour, the, the, the strongest sort of defence of Labour and what Ed Miliband has done is that they have taken a long strategic view and they have a deep underlying structural analysis of what has gone wrong in the economy. That means that when the recovery, now that we have a recovery and that you know, growth is back and gross domestic product is up, uh, it's not trickling into people's pockets and it, it might well not do properly uh, in time for an election for the Tories. And that this is, you know, there are very good, serious reasons why you know, a much more radical, different Labour approach has to be brought to this. But that just, the, the Ed Miliband didn't get close to making that case in the chamber yesterday. He he essentially blurted out a series of largely disjointed attack lines against the Tories, which may be because you just want to get a spot on the 10 o'clock news and you give the you know the TV as many sound bites as they can pick from. Maybe that's the right strategy, but it didn't come across well. But is that because Labour weren't expecting the rabbit uh, as had to be what it was in the end and which made it harder for them? And then isn't that then a reflection of that idea that they did very well not, George, to, to leak this sort of budget or pre-boot, not to, you know, not to have all the goodies given away in advance? So it wrong-footed Labour. It did in that sense, in that, um, although I think they probably would have been more wrong-footed had Osborne cut a penny off the basic rate or had he gone for a, a 10p tax rate or had he um, whacked up the personal allowance to 11 grand or something, as, as, as some Lib Dems hoped. Um, I think we, you know, that may well come in the, uh, in the autumn statement or in, or in the final pre-election, mm-hmm. pre-election budget. Um, I mean, I think, it's, I think it's true that Ed Miliband probably should have said more about budget itself in his response. I mean, one smart line could have been, you know, who's really going to benefit from being able to take, uh, to keep £15,000 in their ISA? I mean, who in this country has £15,000 that they can save mm. at the moment? Wages are still uh, lower than prices. But I think more broadly, Labour are right to stay on living standards. I think Osborne would love them to have got caught in a technical argument about the various changes he made in the budget, mm. rather than focusing on the point people are worse off than they were in 2010. Well, then there's a broader point about that tr- not tricking down to people's pockets, because the chairman of, I think, like the Bingo Association said it's going to make absolutely no difference to anybody. And there were suggestions yesterday, the same happened with the penny off the pint of beer, which actually was a penny more that went to brewers. Most of them didn't really pass on the tax cuts. So... Is there anywhere else where Labour could land a, a, a decent jab on Osborne at this stage, Raph? I think if they, George is right to the extent that I think if they just keep the focus on are people really feeling this in their pockets? You know, you're saying what well, they they need people to essentially one look at George Osborne and think, well, you're saying it's all fine. Well, you would, wouldn't you? Because it's all fine for you and your mates. But this recovery you're talking about, I don't see it. And and obviously, yes, Labour are right to be going on about that. But that is the sort of upper limit of what you can achieve as an opposition. And they really do now need to be moving into the sort of government in waiting, um, the sort of government antechamber. I know it's a, it's a cliche, but I don't yet see how they get from, we've got a very clear, strong analysis of what's gone wrong to, 
we have the plan that means if you've got a Labour government, things would definitely be better. And that's why it's worth voting for us. And and talking to many Labour people, they they know it. And that's why uh, they don't feel super confident. They feel confident that the Tories aren't winning it, but they don't feel confident that they're winning it either. But that's the theme that we've come back to several times, is that nobody really feels like they're winning the argument for the next election. Everyone's quite sort of borderline pessimistic, although the Tories getting maybe slightly... Happier. Well, it depends whether which Tories you speak to and whether they're the ones that take pleasure in undermining David Cameron or not. <laughs> um, well, on that note, I will leave it and say thank you very much to George Moran. Thank you. Thank you. This is Kate Mossman here, arts editor of the New Statesman, and I'm talking... It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. on the hotline direct from East London to Jude Rogers. Hello, Jude. Hello, Kate. How are you? How are you doing? I'm good, thank you. Not too bad. <laughs> so Jude's done a piece for the, the coming issue of New Statesman on the great Kylie Minogue. Um, had you met her before? No, I never had. And, um, you know, this is going to sound embarrassing, but I sort of always wanted to, um, because she's one of those pop stars that makes me feel about, well, makes me feel 10 years old, because that's the, the age I was when uh, she first came out, and I was, you know, the perfect age for this you know, perfect sort of bubblegum pop princess, really. Um, but it's quite interesting that um, you know, a lot of people have sort of grown up with Kylie. I'm 35 now, she's 45. Um, and, you know, just seeing her go through these different stages in life, you know, her rebellious periods, her um, artistic periods, her indie periods, her incredibly mainstream hot pants in the air. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the fact that she's had this career that is, you know, now uh, well, as a musician has been... Uh, 27 years, you know, um, she has had a career, you know, in acting before that in Australian uh, TV, obviously, mm. even before Neighbours. Um, but, you know, she's quite an interesting character in that sense that she had, she can be completely accepted as a, as a 45-year-old woman and a pop star, which, you know, obviously is a, is a great thing, but, you know, that doesn't happen very often yes. in well, pop culture. How much sense do you get of there being a kind of a, a plan behind the, the way her image has emerged? Or do you think she's responding to fashion as she's gone along through the decades? I think she's responding to it quite a lot. You know, one thing I do find interesting about her, the way I talk about it in the piece, is that um, she's, her career doesn't seem particularly curated. Um, <laughs> that sounds a, a little pretentious, but um, a, lot of, a lot of pop stars, they do very, you know, very obviously micromanage their careers, their image changes, what they're going to do. You know, um, Kylie at the moment is doing so many different things that sort of don't gel together. She's been, you know, very successful on um, BBC One's um, The Voice um, talent show as a judge. Um, she's also recently, well, for this this album, she's now signed to um, uh, the rapper Jay Z's uh, Rock Nation management. Yeah, that which, Do you know how that came about? It sounds very strange, doesn't it? Yeah, it's very. Yeah, it's um, it's an unusual choice. But um, we thought we we talked a little bit more about this um, when we met up. Um, but basically, she. Um, she 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 wanted to work with them. She she she'd had the same manager um, 
forever, <laughs> the mm. same kind of Australian manager forever, which uh, is itself unusual. Um, but um, she just wanted, she was she got to know some of the people from that label, uh, from that organisation, and you know just struck up you know kind of sort of professional friendships really, and that's how that you know kind of vaguely came about. But she had a meeting with um, Jay Brown, who is the um, the head of that particular wing of uh, Rock Nation, and. Uh, she said she basically just decided within 60 seconds this is what she wanted to do. Mm. So it was quite a spontaneous choice. And I know, obviously, um, musicians saying things are completely spontaneous. You know, you've got to take that with a, um, a large pinch of salt sometimes. <laughs> but um, I do feel like, you know, she'd had this big celebration two years ago of her Silver Jubilee as a pop star. And she thought, you know, well, let's just try something completely different. I, I genuinely believe that she just thought of trying something quite reckless to do, really. Mm. Yeah, I, I was curious. I've always been curious about um, what she's like in person because there are certain uh, pop stars and rock stars that you know are, you know, what you call good value in interviews. If you got, if you managed to get anywhere near George Michael or Elton John, for instance, you know that you would get pull quote gold headline. Yes, day. indeed. <laughs> and whereas with Kylie, there's always been a sense of um, a reserve and a screen and uh, um, a wall. And I wondered how did you go there expecting that, and did you get through the wall at all? Yeah, I read there, expect that very much. You know, a lot of people have said to me she is very hard to get anything out of. Um, and she, well, you know, you think that this is somebody who's been in the industry, in the, the industry of popular culture since she was a child. Mm. So she's been, uh, you know, media trained possibly to, um, you know, I thought she'd be media trained to the nth degree and all that kind of stuff. And obviously, you know, she's done, you know, thousands of interviews, so she knows yes. how to avoid questions. Um what I was surprised about was she was, well, she, how genuinely warm she seemed and interested. You know, she's, she, she has, you know, she's, she's a charm school graduate of, uh, you know, the first class, you know, come back. She's a, you know, she, she talks, she, she's, but, but it, it does come across as very genuine and I've interviewed a lot of people who, you know, you can, uh, there's a kind of veneer, as you yes. say, there's a kind of barrier, a bit of a barrier there, but you know, they're doing their job, you're doing your job. That's absolutely fine. You know, you're not expecting these people to become your best friends. But I was, uh, you know, very uh, pleased. I think the ten-year-old me was very pleased that she was incredibly friendly and warm. Um, uh, breaking down the barrier. Hopefully, I've got. You know, she talked about um, some stuff to do with feminism and the representation of women, which I thought was, you know, quite interesting. Mm. But um, again, uh, you know, didn't necessarily, you know, say anything that was um, you wouldn't expect her to say. So, you know, I think what was difficult with um, interviewing somebody like. You know, Kylie Minogue, you obviously want to kind of press her on these, um, I want musicians of, you know, her longevity and her status, you want to press them on issues about uh, gender and um, sexuality. And obviously, you know, um, I guess, you know, so, she's, she's asked constantly, monitored constantly for her choices as a, as a female pop star by certain sections of the press. You know, the fact that she's 45 and, oh my God, she's unmarried and she's never had a child. Yeah. Uh, but you know, I think it also makes us make, think about you know why shouldn't she do these two different things? You know, we we think about how um, any artist and you know she is an artist. She's been making music for years. She does co-write stuff. She does. She's executive producer on this album, um, co-executive producer on this record. She does get involved in the process. Um, you know, we, we you know why do we expect these people to have these kind of very defined career paths? So she says in the interview. Um, you know, she, what, you know, if, if I didn't do lots of different things I was interested in, I'd get really bored, you know. Mm -hmm. you know and, um, you know, it is all right to, you know, like French artist films and also, you know, adore the music of ABBA or something yes. like that, you know. That, and, but we expect our pop stars, um, you know, and these are pop stars. These aren't, you know, um, 
uh, kind of uh, you know theatre actors. Yes. We don't we don't we don't necessarily expect them to. Uh, we still expect them to follow a certain path and you know kind of carve out their careers in a way that is. Uh, meaningful to us you know not just individual people yeah exactly it's a a great piece and you've also revealed um, some interesting stuff about her lineage which I think a lot of people don't know so be sure to read the Kylie Minogue interview (laughs) this week's New Statesman you'll get some surprises about her ancestry Um, Jude thank you so much for talking to us thanks very much I'm joined by our science blogger Ian Stebbin to talk about mammoths. This is exciting. This yes. is almost as exciting as space. So quite recently, scientists found in an island north of Siberia a preserved mammoth. But the exciting thing about this mammoth was that it had liquid blood, right? Yes. Well, the, this was found last May, and they've just confirmed that, well, to go back to the beginning of this, um, mammoths are often found in ice around sort of the Arctic area, um, especially with global warming kind of melting a lot of it. Um, and usually they're kind of just like bits and like bone and stuff, but occasionally you get like a really well preserved one that's like eff- effectively like if you stuck it in the freezer for ten thousand years, which is what looks like to have happened with this one. Um, is a female mammoth that was kind of like looked like it had been falling through some ice while running away from some predators because it had a few chew marks on it and stuff. Um, but it was re- mostly really well preserved. But they were hitting it with an ice pick trying to dig it out, and they hit it one bit and some blood came out, which is really surprising because you know it's a Actually, they thought it was 10,000 years old. It turned out to be 43,000 years old. So this is 43,000-year-old mammoth blood. And the reason this is especially exciting is because you might be able to clone mammoths from it. It's also quite exciting because it turns out that mammoth blood must have something, some sort of natural antifreeze yeah, that's also really cool. in it, which we know that some kind of deep-sea creatures and stuff have. Yeah, um, and elephants don't, but mammoths do. Well, elephants probably don't <laughs> <No>. need it <laughs> um, in the frozen But we, we know so little about mammoths other than, you know, we keep digging them up. Um, and it's been one of those things that people, um, some scientists, especially in Russia um, and South Korea for some reason, are really sort of fascinated with cloning dead animals and extinct animals, especially mammoths, because we, they kind of... Uh, it would be really awesome. It would be really awesome. Well, you see, there's a whole moral debate here about this, where um, is it morally justifiable to bring back an animal that, well, we probably partly hunted to extinction. Also, its environment will have degraded and melted. Um, I mean, the the mammoths dying out kind of coincided with the Ice Age ending, Mm. um, and it's only got warmer since then. So it's not really likely that the mammoths are going to be happy living They're not going to be happy in Whipsnade, are they? Yeah, they're going to have to live in like some really, really far north bit of Russia or Canada, where there's no food um, or anything, and um, especially... Um, How to big clo- are they in a comparison to uh, an elephant? In comparison, they're similar to African elephants, which are also what they're most closely related to. Which brings up the question of how you would clone them, because so, I think you were saying that presumably you would have to blend the DNA in some way to stabilise it yeah. with the closest living relative. You know in Jurassic Park, they're like, we filled in the gaps in the dinosaur DNA with bits from frogs, which yes. is, like, that wouldn't work with dinosaurs because dinosaur DNA will not be preserved in amber. We should definitely do the scientific problems with Jurassic Park at some yeah. point as a kind of... Um, but with mammoths, there are, like, fragments of DNA, but, you, I mean, it is a different species. It's sort of um, equivalent to taking a chimpanzee's DNA and using that to fill in gaps if you had, like, 5% of a human. Um, so when if you were to clone a, a, a mammoth, what you'd really be creating is a mammoth-elephant hybrid which would be similar to both elephants and mammoths and would have to be impregnated into a female elephant 
and will be given birth by an elephant. But then you also have the social problems. Um, elephants are really social creatures. Mammoths probably were as well. And they probably had tactics for defending themselves against wolves or um, how to make it across. Like, they would know not to go across ice and they'd learn that from their parents. But if you have an entirely new species of mammoth-elephant hybrid, how do they know not to just, like, run into the sea and die straight away? Um, there are all kinds of problems with that. But even before that... Um, also, you presume you only be able to clone female mammoths if you've only got a female mammoth to clone from. It'd be very uh, hard to snip off that extra bit of there the chromosome. There are fragments of DNA from male ones. We could make a, a male one. But even so, you'd enough. end up with a hell of a population bottleneck. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you'd end up with something that was mostly elephant, really. It'd be kind of a, a hairy elephant. elephant. Yeah, um, Which would still be cool. I know, I know. It's ethical <laughs> problems, but yes. cool. Also, but also, um, it should be stressed extremely difficult. Like, we're not going to clone it in the next five or ten, probably even twenty years. Well, look, Ian, I could talk about this all day, but it's probably time to um, call a halt. So, thank you very much for joining us. No problem. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast. You can find us every week on newstatesman.com forward slash podcast or on iTunes. Our theme music is from Devil with the Devil by the Underscore Orchestra, licensed under Creative Commons. 